Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This season of Jury Duty explores the criminal trial stemming from the tragic death of Ahmad Arbery, a 25-year-old black man who was pursued by three white men, Travis and Greg McMichael and William Roddy Bryan, and was eventually shot to death by one of those men, Travis McMichael. In our last episode, we continued our examination of the January 7th sentencing hearing for the three now-convicted men with a look at the conclusion of Laura Hoag's arguments on behalf of Greg McMichael, as well as the statements of Kevin Goff on behalf of William Roddy Bryan. In this episode, we examine the rebuttal argument from Prosecutor Linda Dunikowski. That's coming up right after the break. 171011B actually says that it will apply only to first offenders. Where technically Mr. Bryan is a first offender, he doesn't qualify under the first offender statute because anyone convicted of felony murder, you're not allowed to sentence them under the first offender statute. So we have that problem first. But the second problem is is that it actually says except in cases in which life imprisonment life without parole or the death penalty may be imposed and then can't even apply to anything that imposes a life sentence and that's how the state is reading this the judge in fixing the sentence as prescribed in subsection a of this code section subsection a says except for life sentences so therefore none of this will ever apply to a felony murder conviction the next section of Donikowski's rebuttal addresses the arguments made by both Lara Hogue on behalf of Greg McMichael and Kevin Goff on behalf of William Bryan with respect to the concept of whether certain counts should be bundled together or merged for sentencing purposes. In this case, the questions are whether the felony counts merge into the felony murder counts and whether the attempted false imprisonment count merges into the false imprisonment charge. Here's how Lara Hogue argued it during her statement. All of this took place in a continuing manner, that there was no stop and start between the beginning of the chase, we'll call it, and the end which led to the tragic death. So for that reason, I think that it can be distinguished from some of the other cases that Ms. Donikowski may be relying on. Uh, But it certainly stands for the proposition that simply because the felony murders are vacated by operation of law does not mean that the underlying felonies have to be sentenced upon. They don't still exist. They aren't still there. There still is a question of merger by operation of fact. 
And here is how Kevin Goff presented the issue. I would contend that count nine merges into count eight. I don't think alleging separate streets that the chase is occurring on changes it. If someone was chased through the city of Savannah, I don't think that you could argue that there were 15 different attempts at false imprisonment or 15 different false imprisonments. Uh, If you went down Montgomery and up MLK and across Broughton and up the president and down Julian, I don't think you could multiply counts that way. I do think that nine is an inchoate offense that obviously merges into eight. And because the motor vehicle that was used in this case was used in the context of the chase, there is a factual merger. And I think it's more or less the same argument that Ms. Hogue was making, but I could be mistaken. So I want to adopt her argument as well to the extent it's expansive beyond mine. In her rebuttal, Prosecutor Dunikowski addresses these issues head on. I understand factually the issue that Mr. Goff has brought up on behalf of Mr. Bryan that two separate instances, one an attempt to confine him taking place on Burford was just a continuation of something that was going on and on and on and on. Ironically, that was not the argument that Mr. Goff made at trial during his closing argument. He actually started to posit that Mr. Bryan was actually leaving um, and wanting to go home and just happened to go in the wrong direction back down Holmes and that he wasn't actually trying to commit a false imprisonment on Holmes. He was just trying to go home. But regardless, what we have here is an intervening factor. Um, I didn't know Mr. Goff was going to make this argument, but I believe there's a case out there that involves aggravated assault and aggravated battery. And it involved a man who had cut the female victim's throat and then also cut her face. The aggravated battery was on the face, the aggravated assault was on the throat, but there was an intervening time frame. And so on the one hand, I do know that there are numerous cases out there where if you start shooting at somebody and then continue to shoot, it's all one aggravated assault. Okay, there aren't separate aggravated assaults for each time you fire, unless there is an intervening actual time frame where you've shot, they've run away, you've chased them down, and now you're over on another street, like we have in this case, you've encountered them again, and now you start shooting again. Because there's two different locations, two different specific places and times, that allows the state to charge it. And the reason it allows the state to charge it is because what you're really trying to do is prevent the state from engaging in double jeopardy. You don't want the state to be able to go on February 23rd, 2020, on Burford, you attempted to falsely imprison him. Oh, not guilty. Okay, well, we'll go ahead and move it over to Holmes, and we'll get a new indictment, and we'll do it over there on that date. So you want to keep the state from going ahead and doing two different things in two different bites of the apple. You want to make sure there's no double jeopardy here. Well, in our case, we don't have double jeopardy here because we have two different separate instances, and they're both in this indictment, and they're both two separate time frames. Yes, very close in time, between four minutes. To be candid with the court, there are cases out there, especially the gunshot cases, that say it's all one continuous action. The state's position in this indictment, and one of the reasons we specifically indicted it this way, is because Mr. Bryan's attempt at false imprisonment on Burford was specifically done with his pickup truck when he tried to run Mr. Arbery off the road and tried to attempt to falsely imprison him right there with his truck. He attempted four different aggravated assaults on him at that point in time to get him to stop there. He was unable to do it. That's why it's a criminal attempt. However, over on Holmes, after he went up and chased him up, and then we begin the video, and Mr. Arbery turns back, 
Mr. Bryant does continue to go up homes. He actually goes up homes. It's on video. He pulls into a driveway. He says, I'm going to go ahead and keep going. He does a three-point turn. And then he comes down homes. He encounters then Mr. Arbery coming around the corner. And that is where that actual false imprisonment absolutely takes place, right there on homes, where Mr. Arbery is ultimately falsely imprisoned and killed. So these are two separate, distinct incidences, and there is no chance of double jeopardy because both of these things are distinct. They took place at separate places and separate time frames within the incident. So we ask that count nine not merge into count eight for Mr. Bryan. Lara Hogue rises to offer a clarifying interjection. I did want to point the court to another case with respect to this issue that's been drawn back to the merger issue that I raised, and that is the point is whether or not it's a continuing offense. Kidnapping is a continuing offense. So, for example, if someone is moved, an asportation occurs, all the places during that movement are one crime. The question is, if kidnapping is not a continuing offense, then is false imprisonment, and I've done a search and I just don't have the answer to that. Judge Walmsley then offers some perspective on the matter without rendering judgment. Understanding that with with the kidnapping, the issue here I think is slightly different. Uh, As I understand what the state's arguing is the way that false imprisonment and the attempt was alleged in the indictment was that the attempt occurred on Burford. There was an intervening interval. And then later, short period later, but later, there was a completed act on Holmes. Okay, that's the argument that I understand is being presented. And that's why I'm going to look at the merger part of it. Now, how that fits and whether or not it merges, I'm probably going to take a few more moments to think that through and how that works. But that's what I understand we're looking at as far as the legal issues. I understand the kidnapping part of it. You have a kidnapping just because you move them within the office. We're not going to allege it. Flip side of that is when you look at some other statutes like the, I won't tip it windmills, but when you look at uh, police chases, I mean, you can be charged with obstruction five times in the same chase. The issue may seem simple, but it's not. In response, Dunikowski first refines her legal response to Kevin Goff's suggestion that the attempted false imprisonment count should be merged into the false imprisonment count. Thank you, Judge. And I believe the reason for the merger really comes down to the issue of double jeopardy, uh, because you have to put the defendant on notice, because you do not want there to be an opportunity for the state to come back with double jeopardy which is why you want to get as specific as possible, and which is what we did in order to designate these two separate instances in time and in place. So that is the state's argument as far as count nine merging into count eight. Next, the prosecutor responds directly to Laura Hoag's interjection and case citation, asserting that underlying felonies should be merged into felony counts for sentencing purposes. Now, Your Honor, with regard to the legal argument that Ms. Hogue made on behalf of Greg McMichael, the state notes that based on Noel versus the state, the trial court erred in merging the felony murder convictions and then merging the predicate felonies into the remaining murder conviction. And basically what they said in Graves was, no, you can't merge the felony murders into murder. You have to vacate them by operation of law. And once they're vacated by operation of law, that's going to leave you with the possession of a firearm by a convicted felon and the criminal attempt to commit 
armed robbery. So there are two cases right there that show that that is not the case because they murdered Mr. Graves while attempting to rob him of his drugs while he was sitting in his El Camino in the parking lot of an apartment complex while being convicted felons. All of that took place at the exact same time. So therefore, Noel does not stand and has been overruled basically by Scott and Graves. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. In the final part of her rebuttal, Prosecutor Dunikowski responds to the arguments from Greg and Travis McMichael's attorneys that the men should receive the lesser sentence of life with the possibility of parole. So with regard specifically now to Greg McMichael, the idea that there was no vigilanteism here because after they confronted people, after they took their guns to confront people, after they confronted those people with those guns, then they would call the police is somehow a neighborhood watch situation. As Officer Rash testified, they're supposed to be witnesses. That's what neighborhood watch is there for. They're supposed to be great witnesses. Officer Rash said he thought Greg McMichael would be the best witness, being a prior law enforcement officer, that he'd be able to come in and take the stand and say what he saw. That's what neighborhood watch is supposed to be, not somebody running after people in a residential neighborhood where there are women and children and people out walking on a regular basis. This was a Sunday afternoon. It's a miracle they didn't run into families taking a walk that day. And on a random day, when the GBI went out with the drone videos and were just going through the neighborhood, they captured numerous people out taking a walk. A family with children were there. The next point, that Greg McMichael has shown no remorse or empathy because he's unable to. Well, Greg McMichael was a law enforcement officer. But what he did on May 5th of 2020 was release evidence in an ongoing investigation into himself and to his son. Greg McMichael's the one who released the video to the media. He went to Mr. Bryan and said, hey, give me your phone. I'm going to take it to my lawyer. Took it to his lawyer and had his lawyer release it publicly because he believed it was going to exonerate him. That's interference with administration of justice. Yes, we did not charge him with obstruction or anything like that. But the fact of the matter is, is this is someone who was in law enforcement for years and actually actively pursued evidence in a case against him to be released to the media because he believed that that video showed he and his son were not guilty of anything. That's two months afterwards. The state's position is he hasn't changed his mind. The state's position is he and his son still believe they didn't do anything wrong. And that is a lack of remorse or empathy. The idea that he did not intend the death of Ahmaud Arbery, once again, he's a law enforcement officer, got a gun, went running after somebody. The jury did find that he intended to commit false imprisonment, criminal attempt at false imprisonment, aggravated assault with that pickup truck, and aggravated assault with that shotgun. And we all know that felony murder has a foreseeability component to it. Ahmaud Arbery's death was foreseeable, and especially foreseeable, 
to someone in law enforcement. The idea that they wanted to get to the bottom of what an unknown person was doing in some neighbor's house, a neighbor they didn't even know, goes back to our vigilantism. This whole idea that they were trying to help the neighborhood out has been an excuse from both Travis and Greg McMichael. Ms. Ho got up here and said, this wasn't advancing the progression of the crime. And I apologize for this once again, Your Honor, but stop or I'll blow your fucking head off. I think that really advances the progression of the crime. You're threatening to murder somebody. You're threatening to kill him if he does not stop. And referring back to the records produced in the bond hearing, Greg McMichael was so not paying attention to his job as a law enforcement officer that he was not post-certified from January of 2006 through 2014. He was an investigator in the district attorney's office, and he led his post-certification lapse from 2006 to 2014, eight years. I won't even go into what that could have meant to those cases that were prosecuted by the district attorney's office. He then lost the post-certification again in 2018, and Jackie Johnson had to make an accommodation and change his designation at his job just so he could keep his job through retirement. This attitude of I'm special and I'm above the law and the law doesn't apply to me and I can take my gun and I can run after people and confront the homeless guy under the bridge and then call the police later about it, that's vigilantism. And that is the main reason. The thoughtlessness, the remorselessness, the desire so to be special and protect himself and his family by taking evidence and releasing it publicly when he knows there's an ongoing investigation is the reason we are asking for life without the possibility of parole. And with regard then to Travis McMichael, there's a reason, Your Honor, you did not grant bond to Travis and Greg McMichael. Mr. Rubin went back to all of those things listed in the bond hearing. The state will also direct the court to things the state presented in the bond hearing, including his text messages with all of his offensive racial animus and language. The jury did find that he had an abandoned and malignant heart. That's exactly what the jury found. They were given that he intentionally went ahead and did this or the other level, abandoned and malignant heart. In addition, I will remind the court that there's an old saying, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And it's great that they had such good intentions to protect the neighborhood. But the thoughtlessness, the lack of vision to know how this could go terribly, terribly wrong and the fact of the matter is, Your Honor, it was a year and a half, February 23rd, 2020, November 2021. Travis came in here and testified. The state asked that you take into consideration his demeanor, his attitude. He said, this was the worst day of my life. Well, how'd that work out for Ahmaud Arbery? Not once, not once did he show any empathy or ability to place himself in the position of Mr. Arbery on the stand. And yes... Four minutes of conduct. Usain Bolt won eight gold medals. When he runs those races, they're less than two minutes long. But the reason he's able to do that, the reason he is able to win, is because of 20 years of training that leads him to those two minutes. Those four minutes are a reflection and a result of an entire lifetime of Travis McMichael and his attitude, his demeanor, what he believes he's entitled to go ahead and go do. The same applies to Greg McMichael. That four minutes of conduct wasn't just four minutes of conduct. It was a culmination of vigilantism, a we get to go ahead and play law enforcement even though we're not, and that we're going to go out and confront people, and we're going to take our guns to go do it without any 
real understanding or consideration of the consequences. At this time, for Travis McMichael, these are the reasons that we are asking for life without the possibility of parole. That concludes this episode of Jury Duty, The Killing of Ahmaud Arbery. Join us in our next episode as we conclude our examination of the sentencing hearing and our coverage of this trial with Judge Timothy Walmsley's announcement of the sentences for each of the three men, as well as the judge's statement explaining his decision. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. You can find more information about this trial at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, produced, and hosted by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. Our consulting producer is Paul Butler. It was co-produced and edited by Chris Taracone. Music was provided by Strike Audio. Trial Audio is courtesy of Law and Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Killing of Ahmaud Arbery. <laughs>